0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.
1: Well, now it's time for our Friday forum to look back at some of the stories of the week. We're joined by Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Independent, Jim O'Callan, Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin Bay South, Keno O'Callan, Social Democrat spokesperson on housing, TD for Dublin Bay North. Good morning and welcome, one and all. Morning. For the week that's in it, The Leaving Cert. It haunts me still. Uh, I have a dream regularly about the brother who was teaching us irish went missing mm. and we had a sub and he wasn't like the first one and that still after all these years comes yeah. back hugh no particular memories
2: pat probably because i blocked it out but uh <laughs> i mean i did my living start i think in the summer of 2006 and uh yeah i got what i wanted uh it was all, it was sunny i remember that um but i mean look it, it wasn't it wasn't a, a thing i would ever want to repeat you know isn't but, that it is yeah that's, that's it's what just it's traumatic heartbreak. and and i remember uh, what i do remember i suppose in the build up to it thinking this is like the biggest thing ever when actually within a year or two once you go to college or whatever you know you, you sit other exams and they're actually harder uh, in some instances but also you know life goes on it's not the end of the world yeah, you can repeat it, I hear, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't well, that's do the that. the even the, the prospect, <laughs> My wife did that, uh, and I, did yeah, I, I still don't understand what it she again. did. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I suppose from my pr- perspective, the important thing was I got what I needed and what I wanted to study what I wanted. And,
1: and then you ways. became
0: a journalist. For and him. then I became a journalist, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Keen. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have hugely strong memories of Leaving Cert either. I think it probably is something that we, we tend to block out. I wasn't that well for my Leaving Cert. I had glandular fever beforehand, so I was really floored for the exams. I only kind of had half my energy. That's what is known as kissing disease. So can you tell us a little about it? Uh, well, I had an active social life the, the year before that, but I'm not going to go into those, uh, those details now. Uh,
1: right, so, so we'd all passed in a fog of glandular fever. Uh, Jim, what about you?
0: Well, there were hard
3: exams, I remember. Like I did a lot of exams after my Leaving Cert, but if I had to identify the exams I found most demanding, most difficult, it would unquestionably be the Leaving Cert. I suppose there's like you've two big exams on a number of days, you know, it's very demanding on students to think like you five hours, six hours, intense concentration. Mm -hmm. But the only thing I say to people who are doing this it, you know life gets a lot better in terms of study and exams and demands upon you after the leaving
1: certificate once yeah. you get beyond that I found the exams easier rather than uh, tougher I think they probably need to reform the, the point system for the CAO application because you get people and no way should they become a doctor I know you know <laughs> zero know. empathy but they get the points and they become a doctor I know
3: that, well that used to be the thing and are they the top points for medicine huge numbers mm. of people wanted to do medicine mm. some of them made shocking doctors I would have thought <laughs> yeah.
1: you know other and, people
3: wanted to do law but there, there wasn't yeah. enough concentration really on what you wanted to do as opposed to what your achievements would permit you to I do. I
1: recommended a system but it never got any traction the idea being that if you were going into engineering for example that you got bonus points for the subjects that you'd actually need for mm, engineering if you physics, were doing French in college uh, and you, you know you got bonus points for the French so the better you did the more bonus points you got mm. which would make horses for courses.
2: Yeah no absolutely um, and I mean you know conversely as well I know lots of people who had shocking leaving certs coming mm-hmm. out with you know 200 points or whatever and and i've gone on to have very successful yeah. careers in journalism and in other industries so that's you know it speaks to the point of it's not the end of the world if you right. do if you do a bad leaving cert, mm-hmm. you know you can still have a great life
1: Now, let's talk about a new political party. We've got two urban deputies here uh, with us, and we know that Michael Fitzmaurice has been talking about. He doesn't want to leave the party, but he's looking to see how many councillors around the country would join him. They'll find a leader somewhere who can speak uh, two languages, being Mm -hmm. Irish and English. That seems to be the prerequisite as far as Michael's concerned. What do you think,
0: Keen? So I think in in rural communities, and it's not just rural communities. There's other parts of Ireland as well. There is a lot of people who feel disconnected from the political system. So in that sense, I think there is uh, space for something. If you look at the look, if you look at the party leaders around the country, nearly all of them are from Dublin. Uh, there's only two from outside of Dublin. One is in Cork City and we only have one party leader actually from a rural community, a small farming background, which, you know, it's Holly Carnes, Social Democrats. So you can see that people can feel maybe they don't, they're not fully represented uh, in the political system. I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I think the kind of characterization of people in rural communities is if they're somehow you know, there's a consistency there people who'd be, you know, opposed to taking action on climate change and that sort of stuff. I think that's a, in a lot of ways, a mischaracterisation. No, but there are
1: people who absolutely need a car in rural Ireland to get
0: their business uh, yeah, done. Yeah. And, and any uh, attack on that particular infrastructure Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. An attack and yeah, attack and, and we Yeah, if you want to address things like climate change, you need to have people who actually understand the reality of, you know, there's a difference if you're in an urban area and you've got good pl- public transport links or at least the potential to put in that infrastructure. There's absolutely a difference to that to, to rural communities. So I do think rural communities need uh, stronger representation. I don't think necessarily... Uh, setting up a new political party is the way to, to do yeah, that.
1: Y- your party wouldn't feel particularly threatened by this because, as you say, Holly Kearns is from a rural background, um, so th- most of your uh, assets are urban-based. So let them at it. Found this political party, I'm sure it'll decimate Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and you'll be grand. Thank you, Keen.
0: Well, I'm not I'm not taking. I'm not taking that. <laughs> that <laughs> unit. I, I do think it potentially poses uh, certain risks for for some of the. Uh, larger, mm. larger, larger you know, parties alright first of all you know I don't think rural people are
3: one homogenous groups in the same way as urban people are homogenous groups like they're not yeah. no no groups are completely homogenous I think Fianna Fáil represents rural Ireland very well I think if you look at the political landscape at present we've eight political parties in Dáil area, but wouldn't they be bent on eating your lunch no No, I don't don't think it would work. And I have a lot of time for Michael Fitzmaurice. We had a similar discussion about this prior to the 2016 general election Mm. when Lucinda Crichton said she was going to set up a new political party. Shane Ross did something else which was smarter in the long run. He decided to identify independent TDs who had already been elected and tried to get them to coalesce about a general platform. It worked out very well for Shane Ross in the end. But it was a much more Martin astute Moran. method of dealing with it. I think establishing a political party is a very difficult process. There's huge demands to it. And the great advantage of being an independent is that you're able to have different views on different issues and you're
1: able to be against the establishment, so to speak, <coughs> but
3: uh, that so you're I going to lose the, that if you become part of a party. The scope for
1: division, even on things yeah. like agriculture, you They're know, going to have the, have to, there might be some uh, people who'd be representing people want to get out of dairying or whatever take the money get yeah. compensation get out or they've got a patch of bog on this compo on offer uh, to to re-wet it all that kind of but if of you're thing. a political party you're going to have to have a view on like the usc and social
3: protection on funding third level education all these things that the great advantage of being an independent is you don't have to go there but if you become a political party you've got to have a view on every general issue
1: yeah here.
2: i've been covering politics for 10 years and i've come across countless periods in which politicians and indeed including Michael Fitzmaurice for example talk about setting up new independent parties or new rural parties uh, or, or new, new just new political parties and nothing ever really comes of it uh, bar you know, Renew, for example, from, from Lucinda Crichton's enterprise, which 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 fell apart uh, quite quickly. Uh, you know, Jim's right the, the independents who were able to coalesce coalesce around a kind of a broad policy platform were the most successful uh, in terms of of getting things done, getting into governments in in 2016. Um, And I think with what Michael Fitzmaurice is talking about now, I'd really be surprised if it comes to the point where there is a rural party or a party of some other name that's running candidates across the country in the next general election with a manifesto. Can you see someone um, like
1: Michael Healy Ray opting for this? Absolutely not. Michael Healy Ray is
2: interested in one thing only, and that's, that's Michael Healy Ray, Kerry. Delivering for his constituents in the constituency of Kerry in the county of Kerry. I mean, Manny McGrath is, seems to be having some some separate enterprise to Michael Fitzmaurice, where he's talking about some potential rural rural party or rural alliance of some sort. But again, Manny McGrath has a you know he's a fine constituency operation down there in Tipperary, uh, and it serves him well, and, and it serves the constituents whom he represents well, or he would say that anyway. And the evidence would bear that out in in successive elections. So I I think that that's. I just, I don't see this going anywhere, I suppose. How
1: how do you all see the prospects, though, of of independence being um, sidelined by a Sinn Féin rise, you know, where they run the candidates Mm. that uh, they might have run the last time out and didn't because they didn't believe in their own success. They had success, but then they didn't have another candidate maybe to take a second seat. The people likely to lose those seats are the people who came Mm. in uh, as virtual also rounds, but squeaked in on the last count. I
3: would have a different view on that. I would have thought the threat if there is a Sinn Féin rise in the next election would be to parties such as Labour, Social Democrats, people for profit. I think independents, a lot of them have a secure base in their votes. If you look at their votes individually. A lot of them are Finnegall gene pool. Some of them are Fine Gael, gene pool. They get their votes from a wide variety of groups, and it's a great achievement to get elected to Dáil Éireann as an independent. But yeah. the reason they get elected is because they have the great advantage of never having to oppose anything that's unpopular. That's I, I mean, one of,
0: one of the interesting things on independence is there, there was a long time that you your independence. You had independent TDs from the Dublin area. And you go <coughs> back to Tony Gregory and McGrath and That I don't think there's any independent TDs in the Dublin area anymore. Is there? Uh, and I think you know there has been a growth of parties like the Social Democrats in in in, in areas like that. We where you have Independents now is in rural uh, constituencies. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately, I think you know, Independent can actually be a bit of a dead dead end because yeah, you can do a certain amount, but that working together with people to resolve issues on a, on a you know kind of a, on a cross. Uh, basis getting more people involved you, you're very limited an in independent how much you can do in that so I think the natural place for people who are independents over time is to try and work together, get involved in parties. or, or as or Jim whatever. says, you know, you can pick and, and choose
1: yeah. the issues upon which you, you want to fight or stay
0: stumped. Yeah, but it only gets you, and it only gets, yourself, so, so we'll, in oh, it gets yeah, you so uh, far.
1: I, I
2: suppose one thing I would say to kind of almost contradict myself is that if you look at the Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks poll last weekend and, and uh, in terms of uh, when we asked people, would they, uh, w- would there be any party that they would exclude from their preferences in in the election when they're filling out a ballot paper? And the Green Party came top, forty eight percent. So there's a there's a toxicity around the Green Party right now that exists, uh, according to this poll, that perhaps is something that a rural party uh,
1: could capitalise on, because yeah Which I think be, a lot of... Big, the people uh, who'd be threatened by that would be yeah. the few Green Party TDs wh- who are in rural areas. Well, that's true, yeah, but but that poll
2: did show that the, the toxicity transferred to Dublin as well, I think 46%. Uh, was was, was in Dublin. There's toxicity attached so. to Sinn Féin as There's well. There's toxicity attached to Sinn Féin, but we know where that goes. That goes to Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael and, and other parties. I suppose what I'm saying is that you know the green agenda, which is you know the collective agenda of the coalition. Let's be honest, but the green the Green Party is most closely associated with it, uh, is riling people up in in parts of the country, in urban Ireland, in rural Ireland, um, and I think that's something that potentially a new party could could capitalise on. But I just I struggle to see how they'll be able to these independencies strong-minded independence
1: will be able to coalesce around a, a manifesto and, and all of that. One, of, one that. of the big issues, of course, uh, we've been talking about for uh, years now is housing, but of course, exacerbated by the number of asylum seekers and refugees from Ukraine and so on that we've had to take in. I, I see there was a breakthrough Uh, in the EU last evening on uh, migration rules. Have uh, any of you seen this? uh, I saw a a bit of of it,
3: yeah. yeah. I suppose what's interesting about that in terms of the agreement of a new, I think it's directive, is that countries will be able to identify themselves and decide themselves what are safe countries. And that's something that we can do at present and I think the Commission was trying to change that. But it does give a lot of leeway to individual countries within the EU to determine whether or not migrants who are from safe countries, can be returned to those countries or indeed
1: third countries. That's another issue that was uh, referred to in the The, Commission. The idea being that uh, that there are, I think, three options, Uh, accept a number of relocated asylum seekers, pay for the return of rejected applicants to their country of origin, finance operational support such as infrastructure and personnel, governments will be allowed to freely choose the option they prefer and no one will be forced to relocate migrants um, and that was a guarantee that was needed to secure uh, the votes from Central and Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm still trying to get a handle on exactly what they agreed but it does seem as if the irish government could say hang on a second we're coping with uh, an influx of huge numbers of refugees currently by the way from ukraine but it could be from syria from any war-torn area or famine area and um, we can do no more uh, yeah i mean but i suppose the government policy at the moment
2: seems to be that we will take what we need to uh, or we'll, you know we'll take those coming in and we'll, we'll process them accordingly we, we haven't uh, implemented any policy measures that would say that we're going to put a cap on the number of people coming in or that we're going to say no we, we can't accept anymore uh, the, the approach very much seems to be uh, for, you know, for all sorts of reasons that we take these people in and we try and accommodate them where we can and we process their asylum applications if they yeah, apply I mean, as quickly The, the as suggestion
1: here is that uh, when this would come to pass mm. uh, a figure of 20,000 euro would be paid by the government to a fund mm. for every rejected applicant Yeah I mean, that there's... But this, this, isn't law,
3: this isn't law yet, Pat. No, no. Yeah. It's just no, a proposal no. that's coming from the Commission. But in terms of where we are at present, we're very limited in what we can do. Even if people wanted to return migrants under the EU system at present, uh, we couldn't. Like the response of Ireland has been extraordinarily generous to date. We've taken in, since the war started in Ukraine, 100,000 refugees, <coughs> 85,000 from Ukraine. And like at present, we're accommodating 85,000 people, uh, 65,000 Ukrainians, 20,000 international protections. So it's a huge achievement Mm. by the state. And I know sometimes Mm. we focus on Mm. the small numbers who don't have accommodation, but it's been a remarkable
1: effort by the state. Mm. People have been enjoying Have have we been, we we know we've been generous. Have we been over generous by any chance? Because looking at, if you do the math on how many people we have taken in the past year, if it's 100,000 people, Mm. the population of the country is 5 million. Mm. So we're talking adding 2% to our population. Has any other country done that?
3: Well, if you look at similar countries to the size of us. we've taken in 83,000 Ukrainian refugees uh, since the war started. Denmark, a similar sized country, has taken in 41,000. Norway, 45,000. Portugal, 58,000. So we have been extremely generous. I think it's something as a country we can be proud of. But I also don't think we should be hesitant or reticent about recognising that we're finding it difficult now mm. to provide accommodation. But that the, argument
1: doesn't so, seem to Anytime I talk to government uh, spokespeople, they seem to say, well, you know, there is no problem and we're not being over Generous and I think because we're, we're only doing. What's I think being there is a recognition
3: that there is a problem in terms of providing accommodation, and that's why, I suppose, last week under the voluntary solidarity mechanism, we decided to make a financial contribution as opposed to accepting in 350. Yeah, but the, the,
1: they were very specific. They were yeah. 350 people who were landing in Greece mm-hmm. as a result of uh, the Syrian conflict and other conflicts in Africa and so on. They made their way to Greece. It wasn't like the people who were independently arriving here from Northern Ireland uh, via circumstantial so. routes for France and so on. Mm. These were very specific ones. So we said sorry we can 't do this we don 't have the capacity. Uh, we agreed to take three hundred and fifty of those people arriving in in Italy or whatever uh, we can 't do it here 's the money the, I think the big challenge now for the government is going to be the shift in
2: public sentiment that you can see in some of the polling around you know, this idea that a lot of people feel that we 've taken in as many as we can at this point. Uh, you know, we did some polling around this last week in the in Sunday independence, not to bring that up again, but I mean it is interesting that people 's views on this is shifting in terms of you know we asked whether people wh- whether we think the government should whether people think that the government should pursue uh, policy choices that perhaps limit the number of, of uh, refugees coming into the country. I mean, I know that would be difficult in an EU context because of the obligations there, sure. but people are supportive of that. The majority of people are supportive of that <laughs> idea. So that's going to be the big challenge for government. I mean, you know, set aside these protests, it does see, you know, lots of people aren't going to protest necessarily about refugees in their community or, or, or an influx of, of migrants into their communities, but they are going to be concerned about the impact that that has on their communities in terms of services, infrastructure, all those
1: kinds of things. Things. And yeah. that's, going to, mean, be, that's going to be. I mean, there are calculations you to. can do in terms of every one hundred thousand people uh, need X in terms of. Uh, Medical,
2: yeah, but, uh, but I mean, like we already have a health, schooling and so on. We already know. have a health and an education system that that struggles
0: to cope with with the people that are already here. But, uh, so. I think this is this is the crux of the issue: is we've a, we've a growing population, and not just in terms of uh, yeah. people fleeing the war in Ukraine or seeking mm. international protection, just in migration in general. People returning back to Ireland. We've a growing economy. We've a huge multi-billion uh, euro budget surplus that hasn't been spent. And we actually, we have a report out from the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council this week saying we're underspending in terms of capital, uh, the capital expenditure and the capital plans to deliver uh, infrastructure. In real terms, our capital spend is going down. It's way below what the government promised and projected. Example, in in last year in housing, the Department of Housing returned more than €240 million that was meant to be spent building homes back to the central. Uh, exchequer So we're in this Extraordinary situation Where we're getting This, this very significant Underspend in infrastructure That is really Really needed and I think right. that is G- Jim do we need Some sort of Declaration of strategy
1: And policy Very clear From the government I mean I keep hearing From government spokesperson, We have international obligations yeah. Therefore we take people in Even from so called Safe countries mm-hmm. If they've got a good enough Story uh, to tell But do we need The government to outline For the general public Exactly what is our strategy Going forward What are we going to do About the tourist industry Yeah hotels that are currently occupied uh, by asylum seekers and refugees.
3: I I think we need a long term plan. I think we need to recognise that as we are a very successful economy, our population is going to increase and people who are fleeing persecution or people who are economic migrants will want to come here. I think we need to recognise that in
1: terms of international. Do we not put in a a visa system? Therefore, if you're an economic migrant and you've got talent uh, and you want to work in Ireland, do as Irish people have done over the years. They made their way. They got jobs. Sometimes they went in under the radar as tourists into America and so on they got jobs they looked after themselves I know people do apply and a lot of people want to come
3: chefs want to come from India and Pakistan to work in restaurants in Ireland and Estonia and they make the applications and they get in that way but I suppose the thing we need to recognise is we are going to continuously have issues in respect of people seeking international protection where the pressure is in accommodation we need to have I think permanent structures built to ensure that people who need accommodation
0: can go there Yeah and I think it's very important is. that we get away from the very kind of expensive temporary emergency measures in terms of accommodation we actually need to be using some of this money we have to provide long term housing and accommodation that's going to be of benefit to the country in years to come. Yeah,
2: Yeah, there's talk the government's going to set up a not just talk I think the government is kind of committed to setting up a new migration agency on a, on a permanent footing that would manage this in a more uh, medium to long term way and I think that's probably the sensible approach I mean we, we're we've, over the last year and a half we've been dealing with it on an emergency basis whereas okay. now we need to move to a more permanent We have structures. to
1: leave it there uh, Keen O'Callan of the Social Democrats Jim O'Callaghan of Fianna Fáil uh, Hugh O'Connell Deputy Political Editor with the Irish Independent thank you one and all.